you have to make peace with the kind of writer you are. And I don't think, I don't think we have a lot of choice over that sometimes. Mm. What's going on, people? Today is part two of my conversation with J.H. Moncrief. Today we dive right into my story, my answer for the prompt rage and freedom that J.H. wrote to last week. J.H. dissects my story and gives me some really encouraging feedback. Then we dive into some real meat. We talk about having a sense of failure throughout accomplishment, feeling like a failure even though you're accomplishing tremendous things. How common is that for a creative person and how do you deal with that? And besides some really good advice that JH gives for aspiring authors, we really examine the Canadian literary scene from the perspective of a genre writer. We really get into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I think that it's invaluable information, especially if you're an aspiring author in Canada, but it's applicable everywhere. If you're an aspiring author and you want to write and be known for your work, listen to this episode. You're going to get so much out of JH's experience as I did. It's going to be lots of good fuel for you and maybe even a little entertaining. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody. So we're going to continue the story time or whatever it is I'm going to call these things uh, with my story. We spent a lot of time with JH's story, dissecting it. I really wanted to pull some really interesting lessons for writers out of it. I feel good about that episode. You feel good about it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's super confident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way better. Way better. So now, just to remind everybody, the prompt is rage and freedom. And I'm going to read my story now, and then we're going to talk about that a bit, and then we're going to get into some other stuff, I'm sure, as time permits. So, she doesn't have that thing anymore, that stubbornness it requires to push a man away when he tries to kiss you. Instead, Annika has a special prayer, she says in her mind, a kind of rote mantra that washes her of all culpability. It will all be over soon. The mantra attacks her from within, while the elements attack from without, her hair is soaking through the back of her dress down to her lower back, maybe even her underwear, not from rain. His hand is holding her wrist below his jacket line, precariously in the minor space between them, and gently enough. This looks like he's exerting some control over the situation, she imagines, but it must be nothing more than the force of habit, not enough air between them to billow. When the man finally pulls his lips away from hers, she witnesses heat escape his mouth. His breath is like smoke from a dragon. She imagines slaying him. Curiosity plays puppetry with his eyebrows as he appears to consider her alongside a few dark thoughts. Everything is cold, but she doesn't feel much. There's no point running, she thinks, despite the urge. They're both locked in now. This is a dance, a kind of predestination that will happen without either of their consent. And no matter how bad she wants this to end differently, she knows intrinsically in her bones how it's going to go. There is no resisting fate. She thinks he said his name was Timothy. It was loud in the bar. She might have misheard him. Is this where you invite me in? Annika says in her native tongue. And honestly, it does take some effort to pull off that unnatural schoolgirl inflection. That's the kind of thing that works. Timothy has a clean-shaven face. He has short, dark American hair that ends in neatly kept sideburns and a few white hairs in his eyebrows. 
he seems a bit older than the usual. As she thinks this, a furious insect thrashes in her stomach with the thought of holding his passport, reading every physical detail and checking for accuracy. Is he really 198 centimeters tall? Are his eyes really hazel or some shade in between? Is his name really Timothy even? And how does he spell it? She has a thing for names. Would you like to invite, uh, would you like me to invite you in? He responds finally, perhaps timidly, but that could be the language barrier. Annika is puzzled regardless. This is answering a question with a question and it feels out of place. If it wasn't for the sudden squint of his eyes and a singular raised cheek, something she's learned long ago to identify as a textbook smirk, she would be forced to wonder if he had hesitation with that question. Maybe he doesn't want to follow through. Maybe he doesn't want to sleep with her. Annika mirrors his facial expression carefully. She's trying to embody something called playfulness when she says in her best English, I don't think we have a choice. She can tell he's ogling her lips again, unconcerned with the protest she'd like to display behind her eyes, but probably isn't. Low affect, low affect, unfortunately, since she was a kid. Annika wants to tell him no in this moment. She wants to say he needs to turn around and leave. She wants all the courage in the world, but she is a coward, ultimately. She knows the rules. She knows what happens next. He will kiss her again. She'll nearly bite his lip bloody. Then he will continue to hold her in some fashion, whether by the hand or the wrist, and he will lead her up to their fate. She'll wear her purse off her shoulder until she decides to freshen up with it. On the way up, a little small talk occurs, but nothing to write home about. She is slow in her English, and he can barely pass with his Russian. Timothy almost has the appearance of nervousness, is her read. He maintains a progressive decrease in eye contact with her, double-checking buttons in the elevator with sweeping glances as they wait, clinging to each other awkwardly like new lovers might. Is it possible that Timothy isn't a one-night-stand kind of guy, Annika wonders. This wouldn't make sense exactly, she thinks. He is relatively young, attractive, and single in what is to him a foreign country with many attractive women. She tries to study his actions and run it against the other encounters she's had like this. Most American men don't have an apartment, obviously, and these nights end in hotels, with mornings of regret more than anything and her hiding all evidence of an encounter. But Timothy is here on government work, and his stride up until this elevator has so far been confident enough almost aloof. Tonight could be different. The Americans have provided him with a place for six months, uh, apparently. That much was ascertained from their conversation at the bar before he kissed her. I have a towel, he says in persistent Russian, breaking the silence, and he motions to her hair. She can see the pool of liquid forming in fragments next to her feet. The door opens onto the seventh floor and she unconsciously scans for security cameras, she instinctively wants no proof that this ever happened. The feeling of rage toward herself is one of the only feelings she ever feels. And that feeling starts to come early. Before his clothes are off even, she feels rage, and perhaps a little shame. What does that say about her self-worth? Why can't she walk away from him? Bury it, bury it. At the mouth of his apartment, Timothy stops and searches her eyes. Men have done this to her before. She gets the feeling that they're looking for lights in an empty house. Are you sure you want to come in, he asks. He has one hand on either of her wet shoulders. This would be her chance. 
Annika searches her soul, or something like that. She does this mental routine you're supposed to do before engaging in regretful behavior. Then she adjusts her purse strap and reaches to touch his stomach, slides her hand under his hanging shirt, and slips her fingers into his underwear. Annika feels him. Timothy tolerates this, still searching her eyes, and she allows him to. You won't find anything, she'd like to say. Then she reaches with her other hand to his jawline and pulls him in, kissing him and touching him passionately. Predictably, this is what it takes to convince him. Her hand retreats to guard her purse and he lets her into his apartment where, un-American-like, he removes his shoes in a hurry and finds her a white towel from the hallway closet. She shuts the door behind her and it leaves them in near darkness. She locks it out of habit and takes the towel under her arm. I want you naked and on the bed, she says to him in perfect English. No questions. Timothy hesitates for a moment, but like all men, he starts to obey her, taking off his jacket and stepping toward what must be the master bedroom, not bothering with the lights. There is a dark blue hue from the sky that peeks in through his kitchen windows at the end of the hall, a blinking red 12 o'clock on the microwave in need of an updated time setting. There's also a note of sunset orange from from downtown, hovering out there like clouds below midnight. I'd like to freshen up, she says. That's an expression she got from American movies, and it has never failed to work. Of, Of course, he shows her to the washroom, kisses her once more, then walks away as she carefully closes a sliding door between them. The light flickers twice as she turns it on, her face a visage no different than it always is in the mirror. Men see this as beautiful. A woman who rarely smiles is said not to develop wrinkles. She hears him add suddenly, and again in butchered Russian, I'm not sorry for spilling my drink on you after all. There is undeniable excitement in his voice, words likely spoken through a large smile. It appears that Timothy has resigned himself to the affair now. Good for Timothy. After drying her hair, Annika rinses her face and opens her purse to feel through it. She pulls out a stick of lip balm and rubs it against her lips, not bothering to pucker. She returns it to the deep end of the bag and next pulls out a stack of what is now 12 passports. She thumbs through them carefully, the furious insect returning to that pit in her stomach. This is a dance, you know. This is her seventh American man, she realizes. Otherwise, she's had only two Canadians, a Frenchman, a Norwegian, and the two gentlemen from Japan. The names in the passports are Gregory, Ian, Sebastian, Norman, Brandon, Rolf, Shunta, Tatsu, David, Jerome, Byron, and Mathis. She has a thing for names. The last thing she pulls from her purse is a slim but hardy knife, the blade no longer than four inches, This is easy enough to hide in her palm, she knows, as long as the blade is pointed towards her wrist. It might be getting a bit dull at this point, unfortunately, but that's life. One day she'll get around to resharpening it. Either way, she thinks, it will all be over soon. Ta-da! Fantastic. Thank you. Bravo, (laughs) bravo. Thanks. Ah, what'd you think? Well, first of all, I thought that was the title because that's how you sent me. It will all be over soon. And I thought that was a great title. Is it? Is it a good title? I thought maybe too on the nose. I don't know. 
No, I loved it because you have no idea where it's going in the beginning. Right. So uh, did it surprise you at all? Like, did you think it was going to go that way or? Um, well, first of all, it really, and I don't mean this in any bad way at all, but it really surprised me that you wrote that because it struck me as not that you're not literary, but struck <laughs> me, especially, I think with people not seeing the words on the page, they may miss parts of it, but it's a very literary story. You do a lot of, um, a lot of playing with language and a lot huh. of imagery and it's very poetic in a lot of ways. Dang. And I, I, that's not what I expected to come from this. You know, I, hmm. not that it wouldn't, I don't equate literary writing with quality. So I'm not saying I didn't think you'd write quality, but the type of poetic, very lyrical writing, I didn't expect that hmm. from this rage and freedom story. <laughs> so that was interesting. Thanks. Uh, I have so many questions. <laughs> Go on. So is she a serial killer or is this just a circumstance that she's found herself in because she needs to survive or is she like just full on serial killer? So my, my belief about her was that she is effectively a serial killer, but she's not a full psychopath or anything. Of course, being a psychopath okay. doesn't equivocate to serial killer. There is some crossover that does happen in history, but yeah, she's very, um, what would I, what would you say? I think near sociopathic and it happens to coincide with the fact that she is a serial killer. Yeah. But the thing, what's interesting to me was that she didn't, she has a sense of shame, but it's the kind of predestination, right? It's like, seems like she just can't stop herself. So that's that answer your first and question. Almost like yeah, she's taking advantage of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. She just happens to be in this country where all these tourists are coming, yeah. all these different men for business, and she's figured out a way to make that work to her advantage, either because something happened to her that wasn't so nice. Yeah, so I don't go into that. Like, there's definitely backstory to a character like her. There's like, why is she this way? What is it exactly that causes her to... Because the conflict that I was trying to create a bit was that it seems like what she's upset about is that she doesn't want to engage in sexual behavior with this guy, that she has some reservation, right? And she's at every turn, every hesitation that he brings up, she still keeps pushing forward despite her own hesitation. But what, of course, she's not hesitant about that. She's hesitant about killing him. <laughs> uh, which or is, is she? Or is she? Yeah. I wonder like, I was really interested in her for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Hopefully not romantically. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't end well. Um, <laughs> what was, did that answer your question? Yeah. There was another thing you, you did too. It's not so much a question, but when you said not from rain, mm. I spent the rest of that story going, why? Like, why right. was there a yeah, Okay. And yeah. no, it was great because it's like, it, it just, you threw in that knot from rain. It's like, why in the heck would her hair be wet? And I'm like trying to figure out <laughs> all these reasons that, you know, her hair would be wet. And it's like, oh, okay, that set up this entire thing yeah. in a way, right? Because if he hadn't spilt his drink on her, although it must have been a hell of a drink. Yeah. <laughs> if he hadn't 
spent his drink, spilt his drink on her and soaked her. Yeah. He might not have been the victim for that night or. Yeah. So like, it was interesting in that the whole, what I, why I kept that and why I had that, I think was because the whole encounter, it made it more tragic in a way. Like it was less premeditated. It seemed like this was a thing that was just going to happen. Men were, a man was taking interest in her. He spilt his drink, obviously. And they had this, they had some parlay of speech. Like they had, they talked a bit and there was a language barrier and he kissed her, you know, and it seems to be, maybe he was a bit presumptuous in that action, but then he kind of seems to walk it back. Right. Like, he's like, like, are you, are you sure? Like, is this okay? Like he's, he's, he's not repentant of however it started, but he seems to really be trying to get her consent and, um, maybe he didn't have that at first, but I, I don't know. Like, yeah. So Garrett read this story too, actually, because we okay. actually, we actually made a little low key writers group behind the scene. We put the prompt to a couple other writer friends and they've written stories as well. And they're super awesome. We won't get into them, but I have one of the person who's given me feedback on it and it was on this exact part. And he was like, I don't know what's going on or why was she wet? Like he needed clarification at the end. And I was like, oh, it's because he spilled the drink. And it was just, he either missed that or didn't stand out to him. I missed lots of stuff in his stories. But when you brought it up, I was worried that you were going to say that you were confused about it. So I was like, uh. I was right into that point. And then I was kind of like, could and- a drink do that? But when I looked, because I thought <laughs> yeah. in my in my head, she was, she was soaked from the head mm-hmm. up. But when I read it again, no, you didn't say that. You just said the back of her head was soaked. Yeah. I'm like, oh. Like, <laughs> it's amazing though. Yeah. yeah. I think that could have been what image was in his mind too. Cause you, you say that, I don't know why I chose to say like, not from rain. I, you know what it was, is that I think I said something else and then I changed it to, because I was like, wait a minute, it's like snowing. If anything, if it might be snowing, cause it's so cold and it's Russia, you know, it's cold. Um, they're outside the bar and everything is cold, but I no, just, I like that. I like that. Cool. I'm glad, it, I'm glad it worked for you. I liked it too. Yeah. It puts a question in your head and you're waiting for that payoff. It's like, wait a minute, why was her hair wet? Um, but there's so many great lines like um, uh, you, you you foreshadowed the passport and I didn't even realize that until you read it aloud where you're like, she's, yeah. she's, she's imagining how, uh, how his stats would read out in his passport. To me, that was so natural. I didn't even think that that was foreshadowing anything. And I didn't even get that the first time I read it. But when you read aloud, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So what does she do with them? I think they're just her trophies. That's what I think ah, is that she just keeps okay. them. Like she has a thing for names. So she's, whatever that means, she kind of likes names. And so that's why she like, she misheard his name, but she wasn't eager to correct him, right? Like she wasn't like, is your name Timothy? I just want to be clear. She instead <laughs> wanted to wait to get to see his passport. But yeah, I'm glad that, oh, I'm so glad that worked because like, yeah, I had a moment in there. The passport thing, actually originally it was his wallet or something, like his license. But then when I realized, oh, it's a foreigner. He's from out of the country. Um, The passport thing clicked for me and I changed it. So it was her having excitement about holding his passport and like checking his stats and how when you at the time you think it's kind of like oh it's look she must you know she's curious about him she she does think he's attractive like she 
there's there's part of her that's just intrigued about this man and she wants to know a little more. It's kind of like this innocent fly on the wall curiosity, but then you realize, no, that's, okay, so that's one. I, I have a really a good line I threw in there. I wanted to know if you caught. Oh, I really liked um, fragments of water because we, mm. we don't think of water. Like at first that jarred me because we don't think of water being that way, but I really like that, the fragments of water. Oh, I know thanks. there was a bit more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah, that I like that line too quite a bit because I was I'm just imagining how like water collects. It doesn't always. It's not just going to be one pool, but it's kind of like in sections, and sometimes depending on the floor, it'll collide together. But yeah, thanks. And I think my favorite was uh, lights on in a home a house that were no one's home when he was like trying to look in her eyes. I really like that one. Oh man, thanks. I really like that line too. That one just kind of came out. That was you know that was the muse. It just. <laughs> yeah that's how I, that's how i felt writing her was like the lights on her but or there's no lights on and but you're like looking in this empty house like that's kind of what i felt like but i had some sympathy for her just not as much i think by the end as i started to have for poor timothy <laughs> um thanks yeah i threw a line in there that it was a little bit different, but once I knew where the ending was, what it was going to be, I kind of adjusted it slightly. So it's literally, um, it's a f technically fourth paragraph, but they're really tiny paragraphs. Um, and it's talking about the heat escaping from his mouth that says his breath is like smoke from a dragon. She imagined. Yes. Yeah. You caught that yes. one? And I wrote that one, but it's in, it's in bad pen. So, oh. <laughs> so I missed it. But yes, I love that one says she imagined slaying him and i just i was like is that give it all away at first and i was like no it's like it's kind of like alluding to sexual behavior honestly like it or something like it's yeah it's like this poetic thing and then when you read the context you realize she imagined slaying him means she imagines killing him right so it's like that's what i was thinking anyway i was excited about that line <laughs> I knew I knew Timothy wasn't coming to a good end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you would as a dark fiction writer. You you saw that line, you were probably like, hmm. No, happening. she means slaying. She means slaying. <laughs> <laughs> what I found so interesting about this is we both took characters that would historically be on top. So mm. in my case, it was the Karens of the world. Right. And in your case, it was the American businessman. Right. And I teach Russian students, right? And they, I mean, there's so many ways Russian women are are treated horribly and victimized. You know, the Russian male order brides and they're treated yeah. horribly. Um, and often the ones that I end up working with, they're so, they lack so much confidence and they're so hard on themselves about their English and that when they move here. So for you to write a story where that's flipped and it's the American who's struggling with his language and, and sounding like an idiot and it's her that has the power. I love that. Oh, I really, nice. really love that, that she was, you know, here's this Russian woman who we normally always see as, Oh, the mail order bride mm -hmm. or, you know, the poor farm girl or the, the woman who needs to be saved from somebody with someone. Right. Yeah. I love that you put her in a position of power. Mm. I thought it was really cool. I'm I'm fascinated. Yeah, I was fascinated by it. It was just um 
it's funny how it came out. And it is interesting, the similarities that we have in our stories. Like there's both, uh, in your case, you know, someone dies by knife stabbing and strangulation. And I allude that someone's going to die by knife stabbing. So like two two women kill somebody with a knife basically in both our stories, which is, is crazy cool. Rage and freedom. Yet we both come to this murderous women thing, <laughs> you know, somehow. It's interesting how we thought similar but then of course interesting how it diverges as well mine i think seems to be well how would you classify my genre is this a genre piece is this a thriller or like what is this i would say literary thriller yeah okay i like or that suspense, or suspense because you don't get right into the thrills right you're all you're you're building hmm. you're building so it's it, if you had to be really picky i'd say it's suspense i like that Good to know if I ever try to get it published anywhere. Oh, it's great. You should. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm thrilled that it turned out. And so let's talk about pantsing for a minute because that's my process as well. So last, I was going to say last week, but just earlier, we talked a bit about how you are a pantser and how you just, yeah, you just like go through it and it happens. And it's such this crazy cool thing. For me, I had this whole other story because we had Rage and Freedom I talked to Garrett a little bit about it, or I kind of shared my idea. And it was just really cryptic, like he was going to read it. So it was that I had this idea of a criminal or a convict, somebody who had been convicted of murder or something very severe. They were going to be writing a letter to the victim's mother. That was going to be my story, where it was going to be this letter. It was going to be telling of this story that it was going to be a crime of passion that occurred, and he was going to be apologetic and that I thought maybe the mother would write back or something and there'd be a twist somewhere. I didn't know where, but it was like, that's rage and that's freedom. He's locked down in prison. So that's, that's my idea. And when I sat down to write that, I was so bored with that idea because I had to think of it. I just started writing. She doesn't have that thing anymore. That stubbornness it requires to push a man away when he tries to kiss you. And I, I don't know where it came from, but it was like, okay, so See? this is happening. And I didn't know it was, I think, the line, everything is cold, but she doesn't feel much. I That's when I, I realized that she was a character who was, uh, um, I was going to say, emotionally challenged, where she didn't, you know, I allude to the fact that she has to read his emotions. She has to pay attention to his, you know, what a textbook smirk is, is literally a textbook smirk. She has to describe it in her mind. He's done this. So then she tries to mirror him, you know, that. Um, psychopathy, sociopathy, lack of empathy stuff going on, right? So I tried to pick that up and I realized when she was there, I knew where the story was going. And then I had, then I was able to step away and think for a minute and be like, oh man, what if that's what's happening here? Is like, she's nervous. She's not upset about this. She's upset about that. Can I do it? Can I pull it off? And so then I had a goal. But because it's so short, you know, I still able to maintain the thread. So it seems like maybe I knew more of where mine was going at a certain point than you did. Does that mean I'm an outliner or is it like a part pants, no. part outliner? No, because you didn't have an outline, did you? No, no, no outline. I just oh. thought about it after I got to a certain point. Like I, I knew Karen was going to croak. Yeah. I knew that before I even started writing. I knew that. <laughs> I wanted to have some fun with that. Um, 
you know, what we all wish we could do sometimes when we're on social media and you're arguing with that person who just doesn't get it, you know, you would never actually kill them. But if something else could, could do it for you, or something <laughs> yeah, for you, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I just wanted to play with that a bit. Uh, so I knew that she, there was no way she tried. She, yeah. was getting, she was starting to work that, oh, I've had heartache too, you know? And yeah. I was like, shut up, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know. We're not going to make you human right now. Yeah. Um, which I ordinarily wouldn't do. If I had longer, if I didn't mm-hmm. have to read it aloud in a podcast without boring the crap out of people, I would have, <laughs> I probably would have gone for about 5,000 words and I would have made it a little grayer. Yeah. Um, but I definitely knew Karen wasn't going to, wasn't gonna yeah. come too good. There was just no way. Not, <laughs> not with that way. haircut. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, but the line that you opened with, can you read that again? Like the very first line? Oh, um, she doesn't have that thing anymore. That stubbornness it requires to push a man away when he tries to kiss you. But wasn't it just she doesn't have that thing anymore? And then comma. So it's oh, like, calm. yeah, yeah, just that she doesn't have that thing anymore. I really like that. I mm. really, really like that. So you're already going, what thing? Oh, mm. who is this? Yeah, there was just some really good uh, phrasing in that story. Well, this is very high praise. I feel very almost flustered. Like, I'm excited. Oh. Like, I'm thrilled that you picked up what I was laying down. Do you have any like good? not negative, but like critical feedback. Do you feel like this could have been expanded? Was there something that I could have pulled off a little better? Or is that, is it not required nitpicking? Or is, does something need to be picked up? I'm open. There was only, there was only one thing, but it is fairly nitpicky. And when I went, it made me go back and look to hmm. see if I'd missed something. Uh, so it's very minor. It can be fixed very easily, but I was just a little bit confused over whether this was an apartment or a hotel. Because oh. when they start going up to the seventh floor, I immediately thought they were in a hotel. But then it starts talking about apartments. And I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, did it say before they were in an apartment? So I went back and looked mm-hmm. and I found the reference for it. Uh, but that's the only thing where I would just admit, I would just, and I don't know why that would even throw me off. I was like, are they in a hotel or are they in an apartment? Like, who Yeah, cares, I right? talk, yeah, she talks, she has a bit of thought about hotels more so. Um, but yeah, I know it's when she talks about the apartment situation. She says something like... Yeah, I caught it later, but I had to go back and go, wait a minute, I thought they were in a hotel. Yeah, it could be because the apartment is mentioned very brief. The Americans have provided him with a place for six months, apparently. And then otherwise, and these nights end in hotels with mornings of regret more than anything. Here's another one. And her hiding all evidence of an encounter. But Timothy is here on government. So I slide that in there too. I don't know if you caught that. No, no, I totally didn't. I was, I was going along with you. Huh. Yeah, no, that was like another line where I'm like, is this going to tip people off too much that she's literally hiding the evidence? But it was like, you know, of a sexual encounter probably. And then we No, have... I, I looked at it as she was ashamed. She mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, she didn't want people to know she was doing this. That's what I yeah. looked at. It. That's the thing, right? It's like I tricked you. <laughs> Cause you did. Yeah. And there was also the security cameras. She unconsciously scans for security cameras. She instinctively wants no proof that this ever happened. Which, mm. it's a little bit, I'm being a little tricky, right? I'm dodging what she probably might actually be thinking. She'd be like, you know, it's, it's a little bit tricky, but. 
And I was still, I was thinking she's ashamed of like the sexual services Mm. she's providing. I looked at her as, I thought she was a high class call girl, basically. Yeah, yeah, something like that. That's cool. Well, you know what? That is good feedback. And I think maybe when I read through it or do my next edit on it or something, um, I could make that a little bit clearer because you don't want people to like have to stop and go back over like little minor detail stuff. If you can make it nice and clear, that's ideal. Definitely. Well, and it was still minor, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure that was, it could just be that I didn't catch it because when I went back, I caught it. So it could have just been, you know, the the frame of mind mm-hmm. I was in when I read it. But that was the only thing that jumped out at me where I was like, wait a minute, that in the rain when I was like, okay, how's yeah, the rain, yeah. And I had to go back and, um, but I still, I really like that line though, not by rain. So I don't want you to get rid of yeah, that. Yeah, because I, I did hope that created a bit of a question. Yeah, I wanted it to carry people a bit just the curiosity like well wait a minute like how did she get wet and like why is she like i i'm glad that it's there um i know when i i i listened to his talk on short stories just before i read the i uh, wrote this actually that garrett sent me um brandon sanderson had a guess he's a fantasy writer i think i haven't read any of his stuff but he's, i've heard great things and he had this guest speaker in and they filmed it and talked about short stories. And she talked about like kinds of conflict. And it was actually really helpful for me when I wrote this. She talked about basically what kind of conflict is your story? Like what's the big parentheses conflict that's happening? And for me, it was like, well, she does. I had to think about that. She doesn't want to go up to the room for the dark activity. She doesn't want that to happen. There's part of her that doesn't want that. That's the the conflict is she keeps going towards it. So then I had to think, she she lays out so nicely, how do you extend the conflict? How do you like make it a, a worthwhile? And it's like, if this is the big conflict, then you throw things, obstacles in that way. If she's concerned about getting there, then maybe he's hesitant. Like you're creating opportunity for things to happen. So that's how I created the conflict that he was going to be a little bit more... Um, uh, what's the word? Careful. He was going to be uh, try to get her consent and stuff. So like she has opportunity to say no, because that's then the conflict she keeps going, even though she has the opportunity. I don't know if that's useful at all. <laughs> See, to me, your the conflict in your story is class. It's the class system, right? Hmm. Like to me, that's how I see the conflict in your story is, you know, traditionally. I mean, maybe it's changing a bit now, but traditionally. Russia was a very poor, struggling country, has been for a long time, right? Ever since communism, that that system came up and then broke down. So uh, there's a lot of people there that are really hurting. And I I took her as being one of those women Mm. who's now, okay, like I can turn my situation around. I can feed my family. I can make buck by servicing these men. He's the one that's always had all the advantages. If he's an American businessman traveling for business to yeah. Russia and getting put up by, by a company, yeah. an apartment, he's making some serious bucks. So I saw it as a class conflict. That's it. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I don't disagree. That conflict is 100% there. Um, interesting that, like, I didn't cho- choose to, like, emphasize it in my own brain, that what what I focused on was the... I guess, yeah, just the fact of her not wanting to go up and that what it could have been. Yeah, I wonder how much of that, like that, 
whatever accuracy this has in the realm of like Russian society is definitely just through the absorption of media materials and my experience in life. I studied Russian a little bit. I knew a few things about it, but I could ask my students. Yeah. Maybe get how accurate is this? Yeah, if you have a... ever done this, but <laughs> yeah, especially if you have any any Russians in your class. Yeah, I do. Please do. Yeah. See see what they think. I'd love I'd love to hear that. I thought too about doing my research and make like writing it in Russian, like the the dialogue and making sure the and then like dubbing it, but I didn't ultimately wind up going through the work. I can say very little in Russian. I can say I can't even say it. It's something like you look wonderful, but I, I, I don't know how to say it anymore. Well, and that, that comes with its own risks too. Like I was using Google to put uh, some of my book that I just finished. I put some of those phrases in Balinese. And then when my Balinese sensitivity reader read it, None nope. of it was right. Like it was all uh, because they use shorthand just like we do. Right. So when they speak, they don't say the full phrase out. They use like a shortened version all the time. No one would ever say it that way. Hmm. Uh, just like in English, no one ever talks with like no um, shortened sentences or no apostrophes and that. Right. So it's the same thing. Like we don't say you are going to the mall. Right. Yeah. We don't talk like that so I guess it was the same thing and everything was wrong and I was like oh <laughs> my god I didn't good thing you I got that I reader though. yeah yeah all right I think I'm going to shift the conversation now so unless you feel there's any more juice we should squeeze out of my story or the process or anything I just have one question on yes. my own curiosity yes did everyone else in the underground writers group, did they all have stories where women stabbed people with <laughs> knives or is it just us? Okay. So actually, um, one of the stories uh, is by Chelsea Kwasney and a uh, cool little side note about her. Last uh, time I did this story time podcast with Garrett, she's a friend of mine and she called me up and was like, Hey, um, I was so inspired. I was listening to your podcast. I got up to the prompt and I shut it off and I just decided to write my own thing and I started it and then I listened to the rest of your podcast and I just want to know, like, could you give me a deadline? Like, how many days did you guys have? Give me the same deadline. And then she finished this really great story. So then this time came around and uh, I invited her to write a story and she was totally down. And it was a fantasy story and uh, I can't recall all of the details of the action, but I, I thought there was like a sword involved where she was stabbing, like not stabbing, but she was she was in an encounter with these kind of magical entities, like being taught a lesson from her from her master. And so there may have legit sorry Chelsea if I'm saying I have to read it a second time, but yeah, it was very uh action oriented. So there was that. And then Garrett's was all sorts of different. His was it took rage and freedom and like, ah oh, man. Garrett did a really good job too. He had a, he had a very different modern day one that I'd like to get into, but I know it's going to get published, so <laughs> I I don't want to spoil it either. But Garrett did a very good job. Um, yeah. So if you're listening to this, by the way, and you want to get in on some of that writing action, if you want a prompt and you want a deadline, you want to do a short story, there is a low key writers group that's happening behind the scenes. There's no barrier to entry. You don't need to be a professional or nothing. Just if you want to write a short story, 
hit me up, hit me up and uh, I'll get you involved in the next one. Next guest is, she doesn't know it yet, but it's, it's probably going to be Crystal. Probably going to be Crystal. I'll just say that. <laughs> then she'll have no choice. Um, the next guest is Crystal Fork with a picture of yes. her. <laughs> She's like, wait a minute. Yeah. She'll be the next writing guest if I have my way, but there's still other, lots of writers I'd love to get. Jared is another one, but anyway. Okay. I'm segueing officially. We have about no more than 20 minutes, I'd say, but there's something since I got you here, I want to talk to you a bit about. You've been a writer for a long time. You have what I really admire about you is that you've put in the work and you haven't uh, equivocated about it. Um, from when I met you to how I, how much I've seen you write from the two or three years that I've known you is incredible. You're incredibly prolific, but do you ever feel like, I don't know, a failure? Like I ask that not because you are one, obviously you're, you've got so much success going on, but like, do you ever feel like you've never done enough? Like, what's driving you? Do you have a sense of, like, a, you've accomplished so much. Do you feel like you can just hang it up? Or it's like, you just keep going? What's What keeps you staying, I guess, in that state of winning? This could be a very poorly worded question, but I know you'll take take it and run with it. Um. Yeah, I always feel like a failure because I'm not living up to my own goals, right? Like growing up, I've, I come from a very small, isolated community. So I was the writer in that town and hmm. JH is going to be the writer. JH is going to, you know, she's going to put our town on the map. She's going to be the next Stephen King. I had my writing teacher calling me Stephanie Queen. Oh, the really? whole bit. And I totally believed it. Mm. So in some ways I was set up to, if I don't reach that pinnacle where I'm, you know, developing libraries and communities and like with my name on them and, you know, making like having like eight of my books on the bestsellers list at the same time and mm. having the movies of my books make Hollywood uh, records at the same time, like Stephen King does, I'm a failure. There's that, like being raised, believing that, that, oh, well, I'm destined mm -hmm. for that success. So where the heck is it? So there's, that's, that's, that's part of it. The other reason why I felt like a failure for years, and this really took me time to come to terms with this, is starting out, I knew I wanted to be a writer, always. I knew I wanted to be a novelist. That was easy. But I knew that it wasn't easy to make a living this way at least not at first. So I decided I wanted to have some kind of writing job where I could pay my bills while still writing and then try to write the big novel on the side. Mm -hmm. So I became a journalist and did that ever set me back as a writer like hmm. for years and years because I became a very busy journalist. And when you're writing hundreds of stories all the time, articles yeah. for a papers and magazines, the last thing you want to do after all that's done is write stories. I really beat myself up about that. It's like when I, as I mentioned in the last podcast, when I finally got that novel published for the first time and all my colleagues were saying, what else you got? Why, why don't mm -hmm. you have anything else published? Why is this your first? I felt terrible. 
I just, it was an echo of that shame. Yeah. That I'd always felt because it's like, why don't I have more published? This has been all I've ever wanted to do. And what have I done? I squandered my time being a journalist. Oh, that's so terrible that it would rob you of like the celebration of. I squandered my time in public relations. I squandered my time in marketing. And what I've started to try and do to embrace what I've done is I've learned all the things that being a journalist taught me about writing, to write to a deadline, uh, Mm. to treat it as a business, uh, to quote people accurately, like to have dialogue that actually sounds like people talk. Uh, And just even how people react in certain situations. Mm. I've read books or edited books where say a child goes missing, right? Child goes missing. Uh, The parents go to the police department to put in a report they come back to their house there's a scrum of reporters outside their building going did you kill your kid you know Uh, yeah i would never write a scene like that because i know a it's way too fast and b no reporter would ever ask that no reporters would ever do that they're not going to scrum the house of someone whose kid has just gone missing so journalism has helped me in that way too Mm. I've seen how families who have lost their children, I've seen how they grieve. I've seen how they actually react. And it's not like I'm there going. Yeah. Notes, taking notes. But I remember, right. I'm, I'm living their pain with them in the moment and I'm trying to do justice to their story. But once later on, years later, I can remember that and go, yeah, this is how, Mm. this is how it is. Instead of like trying to dream up in my head what that experience is like. Yeah. yeah, so I've tried I've tried to turn it into a positive instead of just beating myself up for all the lost years. Well, I'm glad. But it's it's I'm glad that you also yeah, you're willing to say that you have felt like a failure though because so many people have this idea that um a comp- accomplishment is sort of in the eye of the beholder, right? Where if you you've written you know, over you've written like 15 books, you said, 15 novels and like 11 of them have been published, that's insanely more than a lot of people even dream. A lot of people are like, ah, I just want to have like, write a good book someday. And, but but the truth is like, it's 100% true that you can have done something that's from the eyes of someone else amazing. And based on your circumstance and what people have said around you and what you came from and the reasons you, you got there, you can have this really... Um, unfortunate dialogue with yourself and it it's sad that you've gone through that but i'm glad that you also spun a positive there too realizing that the experiences that you've been through as a as a journalist though it kind of set you back in terms of getting on with it there was an amazing amount of life experience that you gained and even some very practical productivity experience such as writing to a deadline getting your shit done like that's really important and so hard for writers of all ages and class or you know like amateur to professional to get we forget that you got to get your work done so it seems like a lesson that has been gained through some you know some trial do you feel like there are are there other writers because you i know you know like a gazillion writers because you're You've spoken at conferences, you teach, there's so many things you've done, and I know you're well-connected, you're, you strike me as extroverted, I know you have a lot of friends. Are other writers like this too? Can they be? 
I think so. I mean, I think everybody knows that great story of uh, Stephen King writing Carrie and throwing it in the trash and his wife picking it out and sending it to the agent. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I've heard James Joyce thought everything he wrote was crap. I think it was James Joyce. Like, it's just there's something about being this kind of creative where we're incredibly hard on ourselves. Hmm. And I know you and I've talked about this a bit and it was probably where you were going when you asked me that question. But I mean, I live in a country where being someone who writes popular fiction is not embraced at all. I like, I consider myself the ugly stepchild of of the Canadian. I'm not even part of the Canadian literary scene. Yeah, probably 98% of my readers are American or British. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, my American friends. (laughs) Um, Because it's in Canada, it's still and this doesn't mean Canadians don't like popular fiction. But the fiction that's lauded as in this country is poetry. It's literary fiction. It's um, you know, our own story, like our own personal memoirs about the families we grew up in and mm-hmm. looking back over our lives. And I agree that's very important. Um, but it's almost impossible when you're a popular fiction writer or a genre writer in Canada to find your tribe. You yeah. know, we're not talked about, we're not, you know, no one's coming up with grants or guilds or. Yeah. Uh, mentorship programs for people like me or people who want to be where I am now or people that could show me what I should do next. Like we don't have that network here, which is, so it's easy. Like say there's somebody like me, theoretically, hypothetically, Hmm. say there's someone like me and I decide I'm going to go for a, for an award, a book award in Canada. Do you think I have a shot in hell so, of ever winning that, no matter what I do? <laughs> I would say as someone who, if I was ignorant of the Canadian literary scene, it would say, I would say, obviously, yes, of course you would. I mean, you've been a successful writer in many ways. You've put out books. People have read your work. Like you are a name in a, in dark fiction. That's an incredible thing. Um, of course they would consider you for an award, but also me, like, and my knowledge of the industry is, is meeker than yours for sure. What little I have, I can say quite confidently, I don't think you'd get an award in that area, which is sad to say, or not considered for award. You know what I mean? Like it's a, the genre thing is, is really weird. People kind of throw genre fiction as it's like, yeah, it's like it's a cast off thing or something, but you know what? I have a, Look at my bookshelf. Like, this is what people read. People love genre fiction. People love dark stories and horror stories and science fiction and fantasy. It's like, that's what everybody reads. And the literary stuff is good and worthy, but it's not popular. Not as popular, I'd say. The odd one breaks out and has its moment, but it sort of seems like there's a kind of unspoken force that you know, in terms of getting a residency and stuff like that as well, a lot of authors who get residencies are writing stuff that, though I'd love them as people, I'd probably never read because it's not popular fiction, you know? Is that fair? Is that an assessment? 
Yeah, for sure. Or, you know, the one thing that people don't realize is that there's literary genres, like there's literary horror, there's literary mystery, there's literary, Hmm. um, but there's this perception, like exactly what you said about that's what people read. That's considered to be less worthy in this country. So, and when I say that, I don't mean by the average person that loves to read. I mean by the powers that be, the ones that make these decisions. If you're popular, if people want to read your stuff, you're crap. (laughs) That's terrible. And I don't necessarily think it's just in Canada because Stephen King had this great quote where he said, roughly paraphrased, you know, you're either going to be a commercial success or a critical one. (laughs) and never the twain shall meet you know no matter what you write someone's going to try and make you feel bad about that and I don't take anything away from people who write poetry in Canada or people write literary books that's great I just wish I mean I talked to a fellow not to name names I talked to a fellow whose book was a New York Times bestseller translated in 30 languages got over a million dollars for the book advance got millions of dollars for foreign rights deals, got over a million for the movie option, and he also didn't win (laughs) that award for book of the year. So that's when you kind of, and it's not just on sales, of Mm. course not, but that many people read your book and liked your book from all over the world, and the publisher saw fit to publish it in 30 different languages maybe it should get mentioned in the province we live in right maybe just a little like good for you when you came from here right but that'll never happen so you either accept that and make your peace with it and focus on the people who do love your writing or it will make you feel horrible Mm. it'll make you feel like there's no, there's no worth to what I'm putting out. It's not good enough. It's not good enough for the people at the Blank Writers Guild. It's not good enough for me. So you have to, you have to figure out a way to work with that somehow. Well, and I think you, you know, you found your tribe, like you said, like in American and British markets primarily. Not to say you don't have Canadian readers. I know several of them, but the, but the fact is. Though it is a wide world, and it is at least nice that you can kind of branch out. But it's sad too that you're not, yeah, you're not lauded as like here's a great dark fiction writer who we have like sitting in Canada right now. Um, you're not highlighted on CBC, not to put them on blast, but you know what I mean. Like they're not interested in your work, which is sad to me because it's good work. And it's funny. It's it's you know what strikes me as it's like uh, it strikes me as a Karen. A little bit with the with the upward nose saying, oh, yeah. you know, this kind of fiction is just not proper. It's just not good for us. And, and I don't read fill in the blank. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's, um, I feel like the universities and stuff like that play a bit of a role in terms of education around literary, you know, work. I took some university for English and creative writing as well. And we studied primarily literary or we studied something that was science fiction and they called it literary exactly like the good old it was a oryx and crake which was margaret atwood that is a sci-fi it's a dystopian sci-fi 
hands down. It is a piece of genre fiction. But in the class that I studied it, it was literary, you know. Because Margaret Atwood has written literary fiction, so now it's okay. Right. See, she broke the mold. So she can have The Handmaid's Tale become a huge TV series. And we'll still admit she's Canadian because <laughs> she's written literary fiction. Yeah. We can still say, oh, she's one of ours. She's our daughter uh-huh. because she's also written literary fiction. So she's able to blur the lines. But yeah, I mean, look at a lot of books that I read that were touted as literary. The Chrysalids. Oh, really? Holy sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. Lord of the Flies. Is that not genre fiction? Seems like a thriller to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All that stuff about symbolism, you know he didn't write that. You know the <laughs> author wasn't thinking that. You know he wasn't writing it going, hmm, let's have Piggy's glasses break now so it can symbolize the end of the intellectual Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No way. No way. If so, someone told him that later. Hey, did you mean this when Piggy's glasses yeah. broke? And he went, that sounds great. I, uh, I got it right here, actually. That's a great William book. Golding, Lord of the Flies. Confession, confession, I haven't read it. It's on my shelf and I haven't read it. I know. I, I'm admitting this to you. I might regret that, but there's a it's few a books. It's a stunt bookshelf. It's a stunt bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I've legit read probably about 90% of this bookshelf, but there are a few books. I just haven't gotten around to. This is one of them. But now, is War and Peace on there? War and Peace is not on there. Okay. Negative. Because if War and Peace is on there, it's a stump bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, because no one reads that anymore. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, I think you make like, it's just a ter- ter- terribly great point to make, especially when you think of young authors who are impressionable. And, well, you know, I honestly, like, I consider myself impressionable, you know, like, I still have dreams of publishing and like I've got a couple of short stories published and now I have my podcast with which to uh, put them out into the world. But I have written a novel. I'm on the second draft. I want to get published. It's science fiction. Um, it's not hard sci-fi very much in, in way, but it's like it's science fiction as it gets. And a lot of, it's it's compatriot types of books if I were to ever get it published a lot of them would be in literary and it's this kind of like science fiction is like the dirty stepchild. Like you said, it's like, Oh, it's like, we can't have that. In fact, I listened to Orson Scott card. Um, he's written some books. I really love Ender's game and whatnot. And I listened to a talk by him and he talked a little bit about the state situation in terms of genre fiction. And he said how many science fiction writers are now fantasy writers down there. And the only real, determinate difference he could find between science fiction and fantasy was that science fiction had rivets on the cover and fantasy had trees <laughs> otherwise they were pretty darn similar They're, they were both um speculative fiction right so like and it's not just a canadian thing but it but of what is canadian it's kind of too bad that it's that way do you think it'll ever change do you think it's like to what level is it worth fretting about and is it what is must be good to know as a young author like what would you say to someone who's trying to get into there or who's trying to find their voice you know 
Well, it's interesting you ask that because one thing this fellow put to me, Mr. New York Times bestseller, mm. was he said, and I'd already been thinking of it this way, but he he cemented what I was already thinking about, if that's even a word. Uh, he said, instead of complaining that there's no tribe, that there's no group here, make one. Um, so now that's, again, that's a, that's a bit of a challenge with timing, of course, and energy and effort, but it's something I really, really am starting to think about. And it's, I think that will be the only thing that ever really changes it is if, see right now, the money, I use this term loosely, but the money in Canadian literature is through grants. It's through art funding. It's through university residency programs, because the idea is we want to preserve our Canadian voice. And for so long, our Canadian voice has meant literary works or poetry, right? Not genre, not classic. Like we could, we could have a riveting mystery about you know uh what's going on in one of our cities in urban canada and it still wouldn't quite be preserving our story Mm. so in order to combat that in order to to kind of change that the genre writers of canada have to create our own and i would love for that someday if i could be successful enough that i could offer someone a grant a, a genre writer, a new genre writer, if I could give them a grant to support their work, that's as high as a grant coming from the Canadian Arts Council or the Manitoba Arts Council or whatever Arts Council you want to pick, uh, I would love to do that. But I think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be everybody who does write popular fiction, instead of us going like, oh, like don't, yeah. look, at me. don't look at me all of a sudden, you yeah. know, instead of us doing that. Um, us coming together and saying, yeah, let's meet, let's talk about this. Let's have our own guild. Oh, you wanted a mentor, but you couldn't get accepted into this mentor program because you don't write poetry. Well, you know what? I'll mentor you or Mm -hmm. (laughs) so-and-so will mentor you. Or maybe you've heard of Susie Maloney. She got a million dollar book deal and a million dollar dollar movie review or movie Mm -hmm. option too. Let's get her to mentor you. Like until we start doing all of that, I don't think it'll change, but I think we have to change it. I, like I think that. the genre writers of Canada have to be the ones that change it. I don't think the literary establishment is going to wake up one day and go, you know, we need one of those riffraff out there. <laughs> one of those, what does she write? Mystery? Thriller? Who knows? Recurring. Uh, yeah. No. No, you need. I'm not just saying I'm going to start my own university. No, no, I'm no. definitely going to try and do something. Well, I think that there is so much more option out there in terms of getting educated as a writer. University, I learned a bit. I did get some creative writing. I dropped out after two years because I didn't see the point of my degree. Um, that's a whole thing. But I, uh, I would love to see that too. I would love to see maybe start a conference or something. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, a, a writer's conference that's focused on bringing in Canadian talent, but a broader spectrum of Canadian talent. Have a, have a couple of seats for the literaries, you know, throw them, yeah, a, throw yeah. them a bone, <laughs> but also bring in, yeah, like genre writers, people who write what people read, um, bring those people and get 
aspiring authors, aspiring writers, like make an event of it or something, like create some connection. I know that it's a, it's a worthy pursuit. And I think it's almost an inevitability, inevitability as long as there are writers like you who do care about it and who are connected. And, you know, I think a, a cool testament to your character is that um, I'm a very, I would say, novice writer in terms of fiction. I have very little that's published. I've not done very much with it. I, but you've been so strongly encouraging to me and inspirational to me. I think that we, we have is, uh, is a bit of a microcosm of what can be and will be created over time. So if you're a young writer or, uh, or an older writer who's just trying to get into it, right? Like, I think you got to make that for yourself and be okay understanding that the industry might snub you a bit, but that doesn't mean that readers will. No. And I think you do kind of have to make a choice a little bit, although some of us would argue this is chosen for us, but what's more important to you? Is it making a living writing? Is it hearing from people on a regular basis who are really touched by your stories or is it being critically acclaimed in this country? Is it hmm. getting writing grants in this country? Is it uh, getting residencies in this country? Because they're two totally different things. Now, you can have books that are funded that way that end up being big commercial successes, but that doesn't happen very often. It's usually an either or scenario. Do you want to be loved or do you want to be famous? <laughs> I'm not saying I want to be famous, yeah. but you know, it's kind of like, do you want to be commercial or do you want to be literary? Which yeah. I would argue, you know, there's lots of literary commercial writing, but look at, for instance, Dan Brown, right? Maybe yeah. a bad example. But Dan Brown comes out with the Da Vinci Code. It explodes and you see people everywhere. As soon as everyone starts to like that book, a lot of people are like, oh, that's crap. That's mm. crap. Never read that. <laughs> How can anyone read that? Yeah. You know, uh, they might have liked his earlier books, which were very scientific. I mean, you listen to Dan talk. He's a very uh, intelligent guy. He's got like all this research he does. It's just his process is crazy. But you'll see people say he can't possibly be a writer because, oh, God, you see, like, yeah, everybody it, likes him. Oh, you it, know, it's I, the same music snobs, right? Yeah, same there's, idea. there's similarities, too. And, I mean, similarities, like, I, my most known form of artistry that I do would be rap music and production. So I produce and make my own rap music. And there is not a huge culture for that in Canada. Now, I will say there are some... You know, there's a good pocket in Toronto, Calgary and Edmonton got their own little thing that's going on. Like there are places, the cities that got their little thing going on. And I think King of the Dot Entertainment is out in Toronto. So there's a little something going on there. But it, it is a different beast altogether, basically, to have commercially accepted music versus being alternative. And I'd be considered alternative. My stuff won't find it on the radio most of the time, though it has played on the radio before. You basically won't ever find it there. And um, yeah, so yeah, I really appreciate your thoughts on this and uh, just your frank thoughts on this too. I think that that's really useful for uh, me. It's useful for other writers and people who are aspiring to get into it. I wanted to talk to you a great deal about productivity, but you know what? I'm not going to because I'd like to have you on some other time in the future where we can talk more about that and really, really dive into it. 
but this was a nice little, this was a good meaty chunk. I don't know. I feel inspired. I just feel like I want to write more right now. <laughs> I've been trying. I didn't to... go off on too much of a tangent, did I? No, no. This was, okay. it was hate worthy. Mail? Is hate mail coming from me? <laughs> oh, not, not from oh, Dan Brown. Dare you. Oh, dare you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a letter from Margaret Atwood. She'll be like, <laughs> you brought up. <laughs> But Margaret Atwood would back me up on this. I'm pretty sure she knows what I'm saying is true. Like, yeah, she works both, so she kind of gets this literary pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's where we'll end it. Is there any final thoughts? I, I'm going to give the final thought to you. What should we end on? What should we take from this? This part's going to be cut out, right? <laughs> <While we think. laughs> oh, of course. Anything you want. <laughs> I think that you have to embrace who you are as a writer. And that's not always an easy thing. We're, we're sort of conditioned as creative people to loathe ourselves or think at times that our work sucks or think we're never going to be where we want to be. And we might not be, right? Uh, but we, you have to make peace with the kind of writer you are. And I don't think... I don't think we have a lot of choice over that sometimes. Mm. Like I could go out and try my best to write poems about hockey. <laughs> and I think I'm a decent writer when in my good days, like right now, I think I'm a decent writer. If I, something really bad happens yeah. tomorrow, I'll suck again. But right now I'm doing okay. So I could try to write some really kick-ass poems about hockey but I'm not promising they be any good. The type of writer I am, even when it comes to a little short story like this, mm. is something dark is going to happen. Yeah, I was going to say, those hockey players are going to die. <laughs> yeah, those hockey players are going to die. And there's usually some sort of supernatural element to it, even if it's, even if it's slight, mm -hmm. even if it's very minuscule, there's something. Um, that's not something I ever plan. It just always, my brain goes that way. So if I was setting my sights on being the best hockey poet of my generation, I would never, ever be satisfied with who I am. Right. So that's what I mean by it's a ludicrous example, mm. but that's what I mean by being comfortable with the writer you are. If you really love romance, I've met so many romance writers that are ashamed that they write romance. They're like, hmm, that's too bad. I love romance. <laughs> I, I feel bad. You know, <laughs> embrace it. Like romance is the most popular genre, the most widely read genre in the world for a reason. People love to be taken out of their mundane, boring relationships, their mundane, boring lives. And to have this exciting romantic adventure. You give that to people when you write romance. I could never do it well because everyone would die. So <laughs> I can't do that, but you can. And that's the thing, like be proud of the type of writer you are. Don't think you have to hide it from your friends and family. Don't think, in, unless I do have a friend that writes erotica and she's a preschool teacher. She yeah, you might have to, to hide that. Yeah, you know, in some cases you have to hide a little bit, but ordinarily, <laughs> <That's so funny. laughs> just be proud of who you are. Like, just be proud of the type of writer you are and be okay with it and work at being okay with it. Because there's, like Stephen King said, no matter what you write, there's going to be someone who's going to try and make you feel bad about it. 
The trick is to not let that somebody be you. And that's a perfect note to end on. Well done, JH. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Sorry for ranting. (laughs) It's good. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you found any of this valuable, please consider subscribing, recommending this to a friend, or leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. If you watch this on my Servant YouTube channel or Facebook page, please leave a comment and share. I love to hear from my listeners and learn from them. Learn more about me at www.servant.com. That's S-R-V-E-N-T dot com. Thank you again for your time. Now go be creative and sane.